Welcome to Tombow Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor. It's my pleasure uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, this summer, if you've been traveling or you're new with us, we've been going through the life of David step by step. We found ourselves in an exciting place in the story of the life of David. And in fact, this is my favorite story of all of the stories of David's life. More than David and Goliath, more than really any of them, this is my favorite one. Um, You guys that are a little younger, I'll maybe take you back in time and we'll begin with the history lesson. Uh, It used to be that if we wanted to hear music, we would listen to the radio. And and the radio was this thing in our cars uh, that had an antenna that went up. And this is before you downloaded your music and you played it through your iPod or your iPhone. And so uh, songs would come on the radio and we'd learn new songs. And if you really liked the song, you would go out and buy the CD. And if you were like me, uh, you didn't have a CD player in your car. That, that was far too fancy for a 1980 Ford F-150. What you did is you, uh, you put the tape deck thing in and then you got a Discman. And you would then have this little attachment that went into the tape deck, and that's how you'd play your CD. And if you had a friend with you, because the roads out where I grew up were quite bumpy, you'd have them hold the Discman as a shock absorber, because the smallest bump would cause the thing to skip. And so you'd, you'd kind of do this. But here, here's the thing that I learned back in that bygone era, uh, where you had to wait for songs to come out on the radio, and then go buy the CD if you liked it. That always the best tracks on the CD were like 10 or 12. It was never the song you heard on the radio. And that's what I think happens here in the life of David. The story we're going to look at tonight, or this morning, doesn't get a lot of airtime. It doesn't get a lot of press, but I think is one of the most powerful stories. Because I think in what we're about to hear, David, more than any other time in his life, rightly reflects the heart of God. And the scripture's called David a man after God's own heart. And I think in this story, you see it with greater clarity and greater power than almost any other time in David's life. But before we jump into that, I want to talk to you for a moment about kings and kingdoms, because that's what David is. David is a king. And so a lot of the stories don't make sense until we really think a bit about kings and kingdoms. And so here's how things work. Every king really throughout history has had some kind of residence that was uh, at least a little nicer than everyone else around. That's how you know the king or the chief is they've got the big house or the big tent, whatever it is. And so even in very kind of undeveloped civilizations, there would at the very least be some kind of great hall, some kind of large meeting space where the king would sit and people would come before the king and the king would render judgments and rulings on different issues and problems. And, And so the king had this hall that they spent time in. And in that hall in the evenings, they would gather around a great table, or if it was nomadic cultures, maybe they would recline, and and a great meal would be served, and you would be gathered at the king's table. But not everybody got to go there. It was by invitation only. And it was always a great setup. One of the advantages of having dinner at the king's table was that you were guaranteed to have the most choice food in the land. If you want to get a sense of what that might have been like, the Bible actually shows us a glimpse of that in the reign of a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not a king. He was a governor over Jerusalem who was set there. And as he reigned or governed over Jerusalem, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we get just a glimpse of what might have been prepared if you were to go to a meal at the king's table. And I want you to hear it, and I want you to see what's going on here, because I think what Nehemiah spread is probably a little small compared to what most kings would have done. But in chapter 5, verse 17, Nehemiah, the governor, 
talks about what he cooked each day to provide for the people at his table. Verse 17, he says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every ten days, all kinds of wines in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And so what's going on here is Nehemiah understands that there's a food allowance or a tax that he can levy on the people so that this large meal is properly funded and all the food is there each night. Nehemiah says he didn't do that because he felt like the tax was too much. And so what he did as the governor was provide out of his own pocket for this meal that would have one ox, so a large, a full cow roasted in some way and served, a number of sheep and then birds. Now the scripture doesn't tell us what kind of birds. There are a few options. You've got dove, quail, and chicken. And now I always lean towards the quail because if you wrap it in bacon and you get the jalapeno thing, that is exceptional. And chicken is basically average no matter what you do with it, right? And so I'm leaning towards the the lots of quail because I think that's exciting, although the bacon and the kosher loss doesn't work. But here's what you get. This was a really good spread. Also, I'll point out what isn't mentioned, right? There's no mention of all the vegetables that were served. There's no, oh, and we had Brussels sprouts and cabbage. It's not even there. I I picture this meal much like if you've been to Fogo de Chao, the the, like all-you-can-eat meat experience. They have a salad bar in the middle, and for all we know, that's plastic vegetables because no one even touches it when they go to that restaurant. That's what the king's table is like. Okay, it's choice foods. It's a a great meal. It's probably good entertainment, but it's an interesting group of people. Because it's not just something you just show up to. You have to be invited. And a seat, a standing invitation to the king's table would provide a person with prominence and prestige and even influence. Because if people know that you are in the good graces of the king, they may come to you and ask you to help them. They may come to you and say, since you have the king's ear, the next time you're talking to the king, would you uh, bring up my issue with them? So maybe the king uh, could help and maybe he would resolve this issue in my favor. Or maybe he would simply just allow me a moment and, and get us on the docket to hear my request. So if you had the king's ear, people would begin to do favors for you. They might say, hey, we'll watch your kids for free tonight while you take your wife out to dinner. But could you remember the next time you're at the king's table and you have his ear to, to bring, up, bring up our trouble? So anyone who had a standing invitation to the king's table would have prominence and influence. They'd have all sorts of people trying to do nice things for them in hopes that they might be in this person's good graces and they would leverage that. To get the king's help. So what I want you to think about is who might the people be that had a standing invitation to this kind of gathering? What would the guest list look like? Well, I think we can find in the scripture a pretty clear list of who might have been invited. I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23 with me. In 2 Samuel 23, we get the list of the kinds of men who had earned a place at the king's table, who would have an expectation that they would be welcome at the king's table each evening. And beginning in verse 8, we're going to tell the story of David's men. It says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And before we start, I'm going to give you the trick. 
When reading these names, you say them loudly, quickly, and as if you knew what they were, and no one will ever call you, okay? These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph Bashabeth, the Tekonomanite, the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, of a, the son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defeated the Philist, defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. And he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And that and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi and the folks from College Station like him, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. And there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilom. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, and David was in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem. That is by the gate. And then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it for me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaniah, the son of Jehadiah, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaniah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Think about these guys. So one day, David is encamped against the Philistines, and the Philistine encampment is at Bethlehem, David's hometown. And David's thinking, you know, on hot days like this, when I was keeping the sheep, I loved to come home, and there was that well by the gate. And I'd get a cold drink of water and it'd be so refreshing. Man, what I wouldn't give. And and these three guys go, what? We'll we'll saddle up and go get you some. And and so they get on their horses and they grab their swords and spears. They break through the enemy lines and and they fill up the Nalgene and they bring it back to David. And David won't drink it. And and then you you get this guy, my favorite of all of them, Benaniah. I like Benaniah because if you've got any experience Pit fighting lions, you're going to know that snow adds to the difficulty factor significantly. And he kills Egyptian men with spears, but handsome Egyptian men. He will take them out. He's not even concerned by their good looks. He just goes straight at them. These are are impressive guys, though. Think about these men. If if you were a kid in, in Israel, you know, 400 years B.C., they would have been on your playing cards. You would have traded them, and, and you just said, "Okay, I'll give you uh, my Tony Romo if I can have your Benaniah," and, and and that would have been what you. These guys were great heroes. And here's what the thing is: 
these men earned a position in proximity to David. These are the kinds of men that have a place at the king's table, and they have that place because they have put their lives on the line and demonstrated valor, bravery, and an unwavering commitment to their king. And men like that, you want to keep near you. Right? You want them close. You want their opinion on things. You want their friendship. You want to be with men like that. People who have demonstrated over time, over and over again, this commitment to you. And these seats were earned. So I want you to think about these group of men. Gathered at the king's table, day in and day out. Enjoying fellowship and friendship with the king. Talking about issues of the day. And I want you to, to imagine that you're there at one of those meals and the king begins to speak. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the king begins to speak. And I want you to think about, if you're one of those men, what you're expecting to come next. Because what has happened is David has become king and Saul, the previous king and his family, have been displaced. No longer the king. And in the ancient world, the standing operating procedure... When one family is removed from reigning and another begins, or one dynasty ends and a new dynasty begins, is that you systematically wipe out every descendant of the previous king. Because every one of them poses a risk to you and your rule. So if I'm the king and and the previous king's grandson, nephew, or third cousin is still alive, some some loyalist faction might rise up and try to make them king. But if you systematically wipe them out, you're not at risk. And so that's a normal operating procedure throughout ancient history. A new family rises to the throne. They systematically send out assassins to handle in the most quiet way possible every descendant of that family. And you bury them in some unmarked grave with no ceremony and you move on and secure the kingdom. So I want you to, with all of that in mind, thinking about these mighty warriors that are gathered around the king, imagine for a moment King David begins to speak in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now, if we press pause, right, if you're just hearing that as it rolls off his tongue, well, you know what's coming next, right? If you're Benaniah and you're, you're thinking, Okay, we're about to get an assignment. Is there anyone left from the house of Saul? The expectation that the next words are that you are to go saddle up on your horse, you're to take your weapons, grab your men, and you're to go handle this issue. But I want you to hear the surprising way that the question ends. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Markir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Markir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So here's what's going on. David asks, is there anyone left from Saul's family? 
And at that sound, these men believe they're going to war. And David says, that I might show the kindness of God to him. And so he sends riders out to Lodabar, and they're looking for a man named Mephibosheth. Now, what we know about him is a few things, and none of them are all that exceptionally impressive. He's the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. And if you know much about David's family situation, that also makes him David's nephew. He was a disgraced man, a part of a family that no longer reigned and ruled. A man who had lost all of his family lands and everything that he might have had a right to. A man with no possessions. He's in hiding in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar is a small village outside really anywhere. It literally in Hebrew means no word. And it was called that because it was so remote and so small that news didn't even travel there. Uh, it, it's much like a place I grew up named Louis, Texas. You couldn't get cable TV. There was nothing there. This is Lodabar. It's a small little bitty town in the middle of nowhere. And Mephibosheth is in hiding there. The most significant thing that the scriptures tell us about Mephibosheth, because they repeat it over and over again, is that he has a disability in his feet. In fact, every time Mephibosheth is mentioned in the scriptures, it points out that he has this disability in his feet. Now, this is important to understand when we talk about Mephibosheth because it clues us in on the way people would have thought of him. You see, people in the ancient world view disability much differently than we do, which is why we wouldn't say, oh, Mephibosheth, the the guy that has the disability in his feet. We would just say Mephibosheth. But in the ancient world, there was a misunderstanding about how disability worked. And you see it clearly in John chapter 9. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. But his disciples have a question for him. And the question is, why was this man born blind? And they give an either-or question. Is he blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? But the assumption that they operate with is that his disability is directly connected to someone's sin. Either his parents and God has judged them or his and God has judged him. We recognize that the disability is an effect of living in a fallen world. That that, that no one person is directly responsible, but that that this is the reality in a fallen world. So we don't say someone's disabled and it's it's their fault, which is kind of what these guys would have believed is that in some way there was sin involved. Now, Jesus in John 2, his, in John 9, his answers to the disciples is it's not because of anyone's sin. It's so that the Lord's work might be seen when I heal him. But I want you to think about the way he was viewed in the culture and the world of his day. He's nobody. And so they send riders to get him, and the story continues in chapter 9, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David... And fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba. Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I give to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons. 
120 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now, I want you to think about this. If, if you're Mephibosheth and you're in hiding in Lodabar, staying at a friend's house, and you see on the horizon riders coming on horseback, and you hear a loud knock at the door, and they announce that they have come from King David, and they're looking for you. Your expectation is not good. We know what Mephibosheth expects, because the moment he's in the king's presence, David has to tell him, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. And the reason he has to tell him is that it's obvious that Mephibosheth is afraid. Like He knows the way the world works. That's why he's in Lodabar and hiding. Because he knows that when the king finds him, because he is Saul's grandson, that he expects the probability is quite high that he'll be executed. Because that's what everyone does. And he comes and he, he, he lays on the floor before the king. And David says, I want to do a couple things for you, Mephibosheth. One, I want to restore your family's land to you. Some commentators believe that at this moment, Mephibosheth's holdings became larger than David's. Because Saul had been king for years. He had had gained massive wealth, and every bit of it was restored to Mephibosheth. David just gives it to him. He says, this is yours. And these guys are going to take care of everything for you. The fields will be planted. And all the, the harvest will be taken care of. And, and Mephibosheth, you got a standing invitation to my table. Where you will sit with my sons. So I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine you're these, these men of valor that have earned your seat at the table. And you're there at dinner one night. And the first time, this is the first time it happens, Mephibosheth enters the room. Now he's not walking because he can't. So some, some guys carry him in. They bring him into the room and right heads turn. What, what's he doing here? I thought we would have dispatched this issue quickly. And they don't just bring him in and set him at some kind of far off side, away from all the action where the people who barely squeaked in on the guest list got to. That's not what they do. They they bring him up and they set him in a position of honor with the king's sons. And there, night after night, Mephibosheth dines with the king as one of his sons. A man goes from in hiding in the middle of nowhere, expecting to be executed. He's brought back. He's fully restored. He's given great wealth and prominence and received and treated as an adopted son of the king. You talk about a change in events. So what's the big idea? What's the point of this story? I want you to see this. Is that when you run the analysis of the life of Mephibosheth, there is nothing all that impressive about him that the king should show this kind of kindness to him. There's no indication that David had some fondness for him from his time in the palace of Saul and being around him as a kid and says, oh, you know, I remember Mephibosheth. He was a sweet kid. Bring him back. It'll be fine. He's a good kid. We, we know that. No, there's nothing about Mephibosheth that David should have this kind of care and concern for him. And David does it because of something. He says, I want to show the compassion of God. There's a couple things I think we should remember here. One is that David did swear an oath to Saul that he would not destroy his family. And Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, was David's closest friend in this world. 
So, so out of love for them, he, he says, okay, I need to take care of him. But in addition to that, I think there's something extremely important here. Is that David just isn't just any king. He's the king of the people of God. And the people of God should look different than the people of this world. That, that that's normal. If the Egyptians, he said, one family's out as the royal family, a new family's in, let them wipe each other out. That's fine. They're, they're people of the world and they do that. But the people of God should be different and distinct. And David says, this is an opportunity to show my men that our king is not me, but my king is God. And so because of that, he begins to, to lead in a way that's different and unique. And he looks out upon this man who hasn't deserved, done anything to deserve compassion. And he gives it to him. And he restores his fortune. And he treats him as a son. But I want to say something important. He doesn't do this because Mephibosheth is worthy of this kind of mercy. He doesn't do this because Mephibosheth is worthy of this kind of kindness. There is nothing about Mephibosheth that anyone would look at and go, impressive guy, should have been treated well. He lived in a world where his culture and his society viewed him as almost less than human. And then you throw on top of that the reality that he's a part of a disgraced family and David has a vested interest in destroying that family line. No one expects this out of David. Everyone is stunned when it happens. And I think it's important to note that it's stunning because he isn't worthy of this kind of position. He hasn't earned his place at the table. He hasn't done anything to receive this kind of grace. But that is precisely what makes it grace. It wasn't earned. And I think this is an incredibly significant thing that we need to kind of deal with. Is there's this movement going on in Christian circles. And it comes from a good motivation to point out that we all have inherent dignity and worth. And what we talk about is that we're worthy. God loves us, so we must be worthy. But that's, that's the opposite of the proclamation of the Scripture. The Scripture's going to say, no, 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 no. You're not worthy. In fact, the Bible's going to go to great length to, to articulate uh, in detail our sinfulness before God. And the fact that we don't deserve anything from Him. The Scriptures will say that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So what have we earned in our sin but destruction and judgment from God? That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. That's our wages. If we get anything other than that from God's hand, it's an act of grace where He gives us something that we're not worthy of, but we receive anyway. And this is where it's powerful, guys. Is we begin to look at all of God's work in us. And we say, I'm a child of God. I am uh, born again. I am gifted by God. I am empowered by the Spirit of God. I am equipped by the Word of God for every good work. And we begin to act like those things belong to us when the reality is they're ours because of Jesus. They're not ours without Jesus. So we can't look at what all that God's done for us in Jesus Christ and think we're worthy of His love because we didn't earn that. He gave that to us. In fact, what the Scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 5, and this is so important, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I want you to understand two things from this. One is how the Scripture describes us, and two is what God has done for us anyway. Chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to think about this. We're described three ways here. One, as weak. Two, as ungodly. And third, as sinners. So, 
it's not like the scripture looks at us and go, you know, um, they're just kind of directed the wrong way. And, you know, they're just kind of knuckleheads. And, and, and maybe if we just direct them in the right path, they'll be fine. No, he says, you're weak. I'm weak. I've got this frailty. And, and, and I struggle. And, and, and I fall all the time. He says, we, we're weak. And we were opposed to God. And we were trapped in sin. He says, he looks at all of that. And, and, and he says, I'm not waiting for him to clean up. I'm not waiting for them to do something to demonstrate that they're worth loving. I'm just going to love them. He says, so at the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were stuck in our sin, while we were weak, Christ died for us to redeem us. It's an act of mercy that God extends to us unilaterally. He doesn't ask our opinion on the, on the, on the matter. He doesn't say, hey guys, if you be really good and, like, and, and you commit to be nice for a while, you know, maybe we go get ice cream. It's not a, that kind of change. It's not going, if you do this, I'll do that. He just says, I, I love you. That's the end of the story. I'm going to extend grace to you. I'm going to send my only son to die for you. I'm not going to wait for you to turn around because if I did, I'd never do anything because it's impossible. No, it's not one who's righteous, not one who seeks God. That's the testimony of Scripture. So God says, I'm waiting because we're weak. We're not going to turn to him. So here's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to send my son. He's going to die. He's going to die in your place. He's going to carry the weight of your sin. And he's going to rise from the dead in victory that you might have the hope of eternal life. And then he's going to send into all who believe. He's going to send the Spirit to empower and strengthen you. But he's just going to do that. He's going to do it. He's not going to wait for us to be worthy. Because the testimony of Scripture is two truths that seem so opposite to one another. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. He says, on one hand, we are completely wretched and sinful and undeserving of God's love. And on the other hand, He loves us completely and fully in spite of it. This is where this good news that we're worthy is not good news at all. Because it presumes that God's love for us is somehow based upon us being lovable. And the scriptures say it doesn't matter. He chose to love you. And he extended mercy and grace to you through Jesus Christ, regardless of the reality that you're not worthy. And so we can at the same time rejoice in God's love for us and affirm that we don't deserve it. And those two extremes make the experience of his love so much more amazing. Because we know that it comes from Him regardless of what we've done. It's not about us. And it makes it something we can rest in because we know if I didn't earn it, if God's love for me isn't based upon me and my performance, then He won't pull it away because I make an error, because I stumble, because I struggle. He knows my weakness, and He chose to love me anyway. And He's present. And for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is the relationship we have with our Father. And this this is where understanding the story of Mephibosheth is so powerful. Because if we read the story, we can see into it that that we are Mephibosheth. Like, that's who we are. As we stand before God, our King, we've been chasing around, following the King of this world, and and rebelling against Him. We've got no claim of anything before Him, and yet He gives it freely. And then, He doesn't just look at Mephibosheth and go, All right, I'm not going to kill you. Go, you're pardoned. He could have done that. That would have been merciful by any standard. He could have said, look, you're just exiled. We've made arrangements. You're going to go and you're going to live out your days in Syria. He didn't do any of that. He says, fear not. I'm restoring you. 
And I'm receiving you as a son. And I think this imagery of of this big feast where those who are unworthy are invited anyway is a powerful image. And it's one that the Scriptures will continue. Jesus will talk about this in the parables and as the Scriptures come to a close in Revelation 19, the same imagery of a wedding feast will be used again in Revelation 19, verse 6. The Scriptures say, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I want you to think about this. The imagery of the end of all things is Jesus returning to us. And the Bible says it's, it's like this. That the people of God, the church, it's like the bride. They're to follow and love their Lord. And, and the Jesus relationship to us as the people of God is like a husband who provides and protects and rescues. And the scripture says he's coming and he's going to rescue us. And, and when he does, it's going to be this big feast as, as celebration at a wedding. And he says, oh, you're all going to be there, but we're going to be there and we'll be clothed in white, fine and pure and cleansed, not because we're worthy, but the scripture says, because it was granted to them. Notice that. The scripture doesn't say they were spotless and clothed in white because they were good. It says because it was granted to them. It was a gift. And just like the story of Mephibosheth, where the king just gives him an entrance into the family as a son, our father does and he receives us into his presence where there's great feasting and joy. And just like Mephibosheth, who had done nothing to earn that position, you and I stand before God. We haven't done anything. Not one thing that God should look upon us and pardon us or love us or receive us, but He simply chose to love us. And that's what makes grace, grace. It's because it's an unearned gift from God. He just gives it freely. And it's received freely with joy. And that's the end of the story. See, but some of us come here today, and, and, and there's one of two extremes. One, some of us think that we're good, and, and that we've been good people, and God should, just kind of owes us. And the problem is that's an illusion. That none of us stand before God with clean hands. And God is a just judge, and He will judge rightly. And some of us believe that, that God will never receive us into His family, that we're just not worth anything. And both are incredibly opposed to the teaching of God's Word, the Bible. The Bible proclaims clearly that all are, have, are, are worthy of judgment because of their sin, but God has freely given the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ to everyone. That when He died and died for our sins, that He paid the penalty in full, that when Jesus proclaimed it's finished, it was finished, and that faith in Him is enough. And so that every one of us has the opportunity to come to Him and, and hear those words, don't fear, I'm going to restore you and give you a seat at the table with my sons. But it's an act of grace. It's not something we earn. It's something we trust and celebrate. Let's pray and then worship our King.